Welcome to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Each episode, LRB Health's Keith Viglioli will talk to the healthcare insiders who are helping to fundamentally transform our healthcare industry. Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi. Welcome to this episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. I'm here with uh, fellow lockdowns victim, Keith Figlioli. Keith, how are you doing this month? I'm doing good, Tom. I think before in our preamble, we were trying to figure out, is it the eighth month or the ninth <laughs> month of lockdown? All I know is you have a different backdrop, so you must be moving around a little. I did. Like as I told you, my my family kicked me out of the house for at least part of the day. So uh, they, they secluded me in a, an old mill building, but getting the job done and the Wi-Fi hold steady. So that's that's all I need. I'm a simple man, Keith. That's right. All you need. All you need today is a is a small little space to work and Zoom and and some Wi-Fi. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we're bringing you another great conversation today. Robert Musselwhite, the CEO of Optum Insight, and uh, great guy sounds like a, a really quality person and yet someone else you have skied with keith figlioli what is this is this your secret to success keying skiing to the top yeah that's how we lobby our guests we get him to get him on the slopes to ski and then we say hey just by the way while we're on that chairlift can you can you also do an interview with us that's right i'm gonna i want one from the chairlift i want a, an interview from a chairlift but let's talk a little bit about robert he's got an interesting background built up the advisory board. What exactly is the advisory board for those listeners who don't know? I think most people probably know it or, or did know it and still know it, given that they still go by some of their name. I believe they still go by their name within Optum. But in essence, advisory board really started out as a consultancy, if you will, and really helping people think about healthcare transformation and what they should be doing. And mostly healthcare providers, sometimes payers and a few others, but most of it was a healthcare provider business. And then with Robert's leadership, really moved more into analytics. And, and how I got to know him actually was through competition. Mm-hmm. And so Premier and Advisory Board were kind of you know head-to-head in the market for many, many years. And, and Robert and I grew a little kin to each other and enjoyed comparing notes in the market over the years and became good friends through it. And you know, watching the advisory board through those years and then watching them ultimately sell the business to Optum, I think has been a really interesting journey for Robert himself. I mean, here he was coming from McKinsey, joining a more smaller, very specific healthcare consultancy, and then ultimately analytics player in advisory board. And then now he's over a billion dollar plus, billions plus of revenue of one of three business units at Optum which is crazy. You know, and his journey is a testament, I think, to his leadership and a testament to who he is as a person. I, I have to say he's not only a good friend, but he is by far one of my favorite people in the industry just because he's just a terrific person and uh, a caring person. So I, I don't know many people who haven't said that about him, who have worked with him or have been a close peers with him in the industry. That's great. No, that definitely came across in the in the conversation. And I, and I have to thank the perspective or the view from Optum Insight on just the, the pandemic era healthcare system has to be fascinating. They must be seeing things and, and learning things and relearning things over and over again. And, and it's just such a fascinating time to be doing what he's doing. What were some of your takeaways from what he's seeing from the front lines? Well, I think the biggest thing is, at least for me, is I always forget how big Optum is, specifically <laughs> how big the footprint is. I always get reminded every quarterly earnings when I hear the news release of how many billions they pushed off. But, uh, you know, Robert's footprint with things like Optum360 on the revenue cycle side and other analytics and consulting offerings really touches 
every facet of the market. And so some of the questions that I had were, you know, does that give them a little bit of an unfair advantage where they're seeing not only the inefficiencies of, you know, a payer lens, a provider lens, an employer lens, and even some life sciences lens, but that does that give them an unfair advantage of seeing where the opportunities lie in mm-hmm. terms of connecting the dots across those different subsectors? So that, that to me was one of the more interesting parts of the discussion and where that business can go under his leadership and trying to start tying some of these, you know, very siloed segments, even though we're trying to deliver an integrated care together and how, how that becomes sort of an unfair advantage for them to try to deliver new offerings to the marketplace. And the last point, I, I know they he said they work with Optum Ventures to get uh, exposure to startups. I wonder how, uh, how are you working with him as an investor yourself? Are they not maybe not involved with the deals you're talking about, but are they part of your conversations and still running in your circles? Yeah, we do a lot actually with OV Optum Ventures. So we've got, I think, one, if not two companies that are active right now that they're co-investors with us. We know that team very well. And they're very active, as you probably know. So we interact with them on multiple deal fronts, multiple initiatives that we're thinking about. And I think it's, you know, it's unique in that they have this lens that, yes, is overweighted a little bit from a payer angle. But back to the point I just made, I think they've got some really unique insights that not many people have in the market. Well, it's a great insights on, again, a tumultuous time in healthcare and a really good guy to boot. So let's get the conversation started. Your interview with Robert Musselwhite, the CEO of Optum Insight. So I'm staring at another Zoom session with a good friend of mine, Robert Musselwhite. But Robert, welcome to the Healthcare is Hard podcast. Thanks, Keith. Great to be here. Appreciate the time. Absolutely. And um, yeah, this is a fun one for me because I always like I always like doing the ones where I've known people for a long period of time. It won't try to make you uncomfortable, but at the very least, at least I know a little bit of the story to be a, a touch dangerous. At least it's after college, so you don't have all the best stories. <laughs> That is true. However, I did do a little research and I uncovered that you had done a, an interview on that got posted with Case Western with your college roommate. So I did I did catch that. Oh yeah. Okay. That was recently. <laughs> we were both uh, mutually bound for confidentiality before a certain date. No, worked out fine. <laughs> I think you were talking to his I think he's a professor at Case Western, so I think you were talking to his entrepreneurship class. Yep, that's right. Cool. All right, let's dive into this. As I tell everybody, I always try to start these with a lot of people know you. Obviously, everybody knows Optum, but a lot of people know you as well. But how did you even get started in all this? I mean, you, the fun thing about you is you've got a JD, you're a lawyer. And so I just would love the sort of history of how you got sort of where you are. Yeah, it's funny. I, you know, I, talk, I meet a lot of people in healthcare who have always known they wanted to go into healthcare, were always attracted to the mission, or always want to be a doctor. I've gotten there. I, I love healthcare, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. But I didn't have that. I, I kind of stumbled into it, to be honest. I got lucky. You know, I originally, after college, went out and moved to a ski area and was a ski bum basically for a year. And Keith, you and I have skied together. You're a much better skier. But that year took me from, you know, okay to good at least, where I could try to keep up with you. And it was a great year. And I always tell people if I'd stayed one more year, I might still be there. <laughs> but yes, I did come back and go to law school after that. And then, you know, I came out of law school, clerked for a judge. And instead of going to a law firm, I ended up working for McKinsey. And the great thing about McKinsey for me was it was number one, exposure to a lot of different industries and businesses. I didn't have one specialty for most of my time. And secondly, it was almost like my business education. I hadn't gone to business school. I'd been trained as a lawyer. And uh, just exposure to a lot of different types of leaders and a lot of different types of situations. So it was a really good background. 
especially around strategy. The only reason I wanted to move on from McKinsey were really two things, which turn out in retrospect, I think I got lucky that I made reasonably good decisions. One was I loved the projects and the people, but we then at the end of the project, we'd all scatter and go different directions and then start a new team. And I always felt like, gosh, when you had a really strong team working together, why wouldn't you stay and keep going? Sort of a waste of all the bonds you had built, especially if you found some really strong performance together. And then secondly, we'd solve problems and give recommendations to the client, but we didn't control ultimately what happened with those recommendations. And so there were times where I didn't, you know, thought we did a great job and didn't even know if it had impact or not. And that was sometimes unfulfilling or just felt like maybe there was more I could do. And I wanted to at least try owning the problem versus just advising on it. So for me, it was the right choice to look. And I was in Washington, D.C. I had some friends, one of my close college friends actually worked for this little company called the advisory board and didn't really know what it was. There was also the corporate executive board and you always got kind of mixed up, which people still do today. (laughs) They had once been one company, but they separated for the history, just quick history lesson. Corporate executive board essentially serves corporations with best practice research and advisory boards serve only healthcare. And the companies separated in about 1999. Anyway, ended up taking the step over there after meeting some of the people and not really understanding fully what they did and not having a great sense of all the interest that healthcare would hold. It was more just the position was good. It was a group of people I liked. It sounded like a fun, smaller organization where I could have some impact. I just got lucky. It actually sort of checked all the boxes. It was a place where I came into the business as a um, to lead strategy and new product development which I liked because I was trained in strategy, but new product development meant actually launching and getting off the ground several new products. So that skill was new, like selling it to clients and helping set up the team to build the operations and actually deliver the product. That was all new for me. And so it had an element of something I was familiar with, but it had an element of new, which is, I think, a, a pretty good success factor. And it was a team I could grow up with. You know, A lot of people early career at the same time and sort of together working against some pretty ambitious goals. And you know, we had people by the end, when we got to 2017, which I know we'll get to, we have people that have been there 20, 25, 30 years. It's great. So found a place that fit those and that ended up being a great fit for me, but I got lucky. Yeah. And I, it's interesting, you know, you and I have gotten to know each other over the years, first from a competitive vantage point back when I was at Premier, but really I think grew an affinity for each other just from the marketplace. But I, I I had a question here about sort of your leadership style and what I've always appreciated, not only about you, but about our friendship is, you know, you, you're one of the most approachable senior executives that I've met in healthcare. And I think that goes a long way to your point about advisory board and some of the people that I've met over the years from the advisory board, how much people think of you, frankly, as a leader. And when I step back and think about that, journey that you just described. I mean, what, you know, you guys were at hyper growth, you were doing all sorts of crazy stuff back in the day that, you know, were sort of the darling of that, that age. What did you learn from a leadership standpoint through all of that? Since you kind of did kind of stumble into that and then rose up and and none of this, in my opinion, is luck. I think you're very good. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. you know, what did you learn through each one of those phases of growth? And then, and then we'll flip over to sort of what happened in 2017 as you, as you transition the company to Optum as well. So that's kind of a deep question. So I got to figure out the phases and then figure out what lessons learned. But there's certainly a lot of different leadership lessons along the way. I mean, when I came into the company, I would say we were still, I wouldn't say a sleepy research company. It was still a really cool research company, but we did best practice research for hospitals. And that was that was the business model. And the mandate that I was given was, you know, how do you think differently and, and find some new growth vectors? Because that wasn't going to keep us growing forever. 
And uh, that was really the first time I was pushed to think differently about a set of assets. You know, we had incredible relationships across hospital executives and we had really strong research. So I think our research teams, those people would be best in maybe world class at understanding what challenges health systems and hospitals faced and what the best practices were to address those. And so we had, we sat on this wealth of information and we did a really nice job presenting that back and teaching the industry those things um, in the day. But it was pretty clear that there was an opportunity as the health system became more wired and as insights became more data-driven that we could take that set of relationships and that network combined with the insight we had into, into what really drove better performance for health systems and apply a whole database and analytic lens to that to really do something different. So that was the first time that just make you think differently. And I try to use that all the time. It's pretty easy to get, when you're in a business, pretty easy to think about your business as the business it is today. But almost always when you look across the industry where businesses have gone through kind of big transformations and big shifts upward, it's generally been from finding something they're doing and realizing where they could take that into a whole other market or, or expand it in a whole different way. I mean, the cloud business for Amazon is a perfect example, right? You've read, everyone's read about that one, but I mean, it went from a from e-commerce company to a, a cloud hosting company overnight, seemingly overnight when you look at where they are today. And so I think in healthcare, it's been the same thing. And so that's been really helpful for me. And I take that lesson all the time. I think, you know, to your point, once we started getting in analytics, it was the early days of healthcare analytics. It was a boom period. Um, certainly for us as a small company, it was really rapid growth. And I had a board member who had been around for the founding of MicroStrategy as one of the founders. And he always talked about the days of early business intelligence software, where it was crazy. Like everyone was adopting, every company was buying a platform. So there were three companies, they bought one of the three platforms. So they either sold then or they weren't going to get back in for years. He said, listen, I look back on that time. It was crazy. We were making all these sales. It was hard to deliver. We were trying to hire people. It was hard to keep up operationally. Clients were frustrated at times because we couldn't keep up. But I look back and I wish we had gone even faster. And that was his mantra to us. And so we tried to keep that mentality during that time. You know, for better or for worse, we made some decisions that really did facilitate more rapid growth and got us to be a little edgier on the things we put out to market that long-term might have not been the best solution for 15 years out to be candid. But um, we also had a market that was really in need of a lot of data and analytics solutions. You were in that market, Keith, so you know this. And it was a time where everyone was looking for better intelligence about key questions facing them as providers. And so there was a real opportunity to be the to be their chosen partner there. So we ran pretty fast at that. And the lesson was I'd probably do it again too, but I, I've learned better how to manage it. We were great at selling. Learning how to build and deliver was a, a learned skill and get hire different types of talent and, and really build up a scalable technology operation was something that, that we had to learn. And we learned along the way, which is never an easy way to learn. And then I think the final thing is, if you say kind of once we get through that, if I reflect just on um, the time as, as CEO and how I lead, you know, you did mention, I do have a very team-oriented mentality. I tend to like collaborative problem solving. I tend to be open an open communicator with my teams and want people's voices to be out there and try to encourage people to speak openly and honestly. I tend not to, you know, stifle voices or push things through. That can be for better or for worse, too, just like all styles. But one of my first learnings was became CEO and had a group of people in the room and was kind of thinking out loud and threw out some stuff that might have been a little bit off the beaten path a bit. It was just, you know, I think out loud. I'm like when for discussion, everyone's kind of quiet. People leave. And like a week later, one of my guys, my top uh, execs comes up to me and he says, hey, Robert, listen, you know, when you say stuff in a meeting, you don't know what happens. Like outside the meeting, that stuff just blows up. I've had 100 emails about the stuff you said in the meeting. And I hadn't thought twice about it. 
Like, and so you realize that as a leader, you're being watched all the time and um, how you show up and how you present and what you say does have a big impact within your organization. I've tried to remember that all the time. So like, I'm really, really careful about if I do want to think out loud, I say, hey, I'm just thinking out loud. You don't need to take this way of doing anything with it. Or listen, I want to give you feedback on this thing. And it's not because I want you to necessarily change it. It's more because I want you to share my observations just to be conscious of the fact that people will take what you're saying and magnify it tenfold sometimes without you intending or knowing it. It can be a positive, again, if you if you need that. So at times, you can use that lever. But there are way more times when it was happening when I wasn't aware of it. And that's that's a lesson I take forward as well. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm only smiling because I've made that mistake a thousand times. So yeah. I, <laughs> I think our personality affinity is, is strong from that vector. I definitely can, can replay a lot. When I was at McKinsey, my very first project manager, you know, I was new to McKinsey. I can't remember, Keith, if you started in consulting. I think you did too, right? Yep. But you know how these projects go. It's the night before the first big client review. Everyone's running around, like we're late, trying to get a document together. I was stressed. And like my project manager just sitting there totally calm. The partners were coming in, telling him to do this and that. He's just like taking it. And then I'm like, how do you remain so calm? Like this is stressful. And he's like, stress? He's like, I was in the army. I was in Grenada. I've been shot at. This is nothing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I tell my team that all the time, like it is a good lesson, which is what we do is really important in healthcare it is life or death. But, you know, you got to define stress in the right, you have the right calibration on that. And that does help. Even just the other day, I used that example with a team member who felt like, boy, man, this is really hard working on something hard. I'm stressed about it. And I'm like, okay, well, let's just think about how, what do you mean by stressed about it? And kind of just unpack that a little bit. No one's going to die. You're doing great work. You know, step back a little bit. You got to be in it for the long game, otherwise, you know, it's no, you're no good to anybody or in yourself if you're just going to get so stressed that you can't push it through. Yeah, totally. And you know, we're seeing that on the front lines of COVID for the last six months too. So a lot of perspective. And and so because I was in it with you, and I can I can appreciate this more than most. You know, we got to this kind of 2015, 2016, and. And the wheels kind of came off the bus for sort of the analytics business to a certain degree. And, you know, when you start thinking about where we were at the time and where you were at the time, we all were kind of up and to the right fast. And then as you stepped back and as we transitioned to Optum now, you know, what was that decision like to sell to Optum? Because I think a lot of people, me included, were pretty surprised because you had this great company that was sort of felt like it was part of the healthcare ecosystem that then was selling to a subdivision or a large division of, of a payer. And so I'm just curious how all that went down. And I think a lot of people ask those questions all the time and, you know, whatever you're comfortable sharing. Sure. I'd say there were two things that started going on. So obviously, yeah, 2015, things slowed down a little bit. Our healthcare business stopped growing as fast as it had grown. We had also, if you remember, been investing in building up an education business that mirrored our healthcare business called Education Advisory Board, or EAB. And that business had grown nicely, but not at all in the pace with the healthcare business. It was still really small as part of the company. And we always wanted it. We felt like it had the power to become another advisory board just for education. And the history of the company always been, you know, advisory board was originally both corporate and healthcare and spun out the corporate part into CEB. This is another opportunity to create another market based on our capabilities and potentially spin it out. We then made a, a large acquisition of a company called Royal back in 2015, which, or maybe it was end of 14, that essentially was a big player in enrollment management, which was an area we were doing a lot of research in, had a lot of interest from our university clients. 
that was a great acquisition. And if you look at it today, it's really fortified that part of the business, but it stumbled out of the gate and the new leadership team left earlier than we wanted them to. So we had to make a change there. And um, what happened was we actually had a year where the healthcare business performed really well, but, but all the focus for our investors on the education business. And then the next year, the education business got on track. Really uh, great work by several of my team members to get that thing in great shape. But the healthcare business was slowing down. And so as a public company at the time, and not a huge public company, one of our investors always called, he said, you're always going to be lowest common denominator. When healthcare business is going well, if education's off track, all your questions are going to be about education. When education's going fine, then people aren't going to worry about education. They're going to worry about why is healthcare not on track with education. That was totally the case. It was like we couldn't get them timed <laughs> perfectly together. We had started talking as a board about what do you do about it? You know, do you spin out the education business probably a little before we felt like we were ready to do it to address that? Or do you, do you look at other options? And so we were starting to contemplate what to do about that. And then we had an activist. So we had Elliot took a stake in our company and we've seen them in several healthcare investments. And, you know, they actually, we didn't deal with them much, but they had a pretty clear perspective that the right answer was to separate the businesses and probably by, by selling either the businesses separately or the whole thing to get them separated. And we did a lot of board discussions, but ended up agreeing. And therefore in 17, we actually ran a relatively public sale process. I mean, we talked to a lot of players in the industry and it was, I remember back on that because, and I've told people to opt in this, so it's not no secret. I don't think I'll get in trouble for it, but you know, you do a lot of those meetings. It's tiring. Like you kind of meet back to back, you're answering a lot of the same questions and it's just long days in a, in a legal conference room. And I met Optum before. I met several people from Optum across the years. But when that meeting was on my calendar, I was like, oh, you know, Optum, this will never be, you know, whatever. We'll just do the meeting. And four hours later, we walked out of that meeting. I'm like, that's going to be the one. Like before we even knew what the value was, before we knew what things would go, it was just clear that the things we started talking about in the room, it wasn't like, why was your EPS down two cents last year? And what are you doing about costs here? Which some of the questions were from some of the bidders. It was about, wow, look at your relationships with providers and look at what you're doing, how well you understand their problems. And we at Optum have all these capabilities, but we don't necessarily package them in a way that's super compelling to providers. And imagine if we could take all the forces and capabilities and power of Optum and channel those in a way that was compelling for providers and really built up and offering just how amazing that would be. And from our perspective, you know, in the healthcare business, we're like, I'm nothing bad to say about the advisor board, awesome company, great products, super great people, great relationships, but we were small. And so we had to pick and choose where we made big investments against our strategy. And here was an opportunity to say, whatever we wanted to do for providers, we would have the backing and the might and the capabilities to do that. It was walked out and I was like, wow, this could be really interesting if this goes right. And so, that really was the vision behind the deal was we, we kind of became the provider portal for the power of Optum. And there were some other things that were going to be cool too. I feel like we could expand our research into other markets, which we felt like we needed to. If you remember back then, you had a lot of providers launching health plans and getting into risk. The market seemed to be what, what was a health system. The definition was really changing and we needed to get out of the box of just serving hospitals per se and get broader and Optum provided an opportunity for our research and our analytic work to do that. So it's a long explanation, but it's important because I think I even would have said, same as you, if I go back a few years, oh, you know, advisor board and Optum, why would that ever be a fit? But it's really important to realize that what we wanted to accomplish strategically, Optum was a great for, great channel for us to do that. And fortunately, they came in with the best bid on the healthcare side. We were able to divest the education business to a private equity firm called Vista. 
end up with a great transaction based on value for the business and move to Optum. So I think, you know, to be transparent, a lot of people inside the company had the same reaction because I had the benefit of going through the conversations, but our 3,500 employees didn't. And the way you first said it, which is an arm of a payer, if you think of it that way, it makes no sense at all. If you think of it as Optum, which actually does serve every corner of the industry and it is sometimes maddeningly independent from UHC, but is independent from UHC, it makes a lot more sense. I think if you kind of look now two and a half years in back on the vision behind that and what we expected to accomplish, it's really come to pass. I mean, it hasn't always been exactly in the way that we've talked about it, but if you look at the position we have with providers and the work that we're doing and some of the larger transformational opportunities that we've developed with, with health systems, that all comes because we've had the insight and relationships of advisory board with the power of Optum behind us. And so like, let's put a pin in that for a second in terms of the different stakeholders, because I definitely want to dive into that for a second. But just a level set. I mean, now you went from a smaller type company, but it was a good sized company advisory board to your point earlier, to now running a $10 billion division with 35,000 employees. Give people a perspective of, I think people know the brand Optum, but I'm not so sure people understand the pieces, the three divisions and sort of exactly what you own. So maybe we could do a quick one on that. And then let's come back around to the, to the multi-stakeholder. It's funny. I um, never started a conversation about Optum without explaining a little bit because it's still complex even two and a half years in. It's just a big place. I mean, it's a hundred plus million dollar organization, billion dollar organization with three divisions that have a lot of different capabilities. The simplest way to look at it is there are three divisions of Optum. Optum RX is the largest, and that's our pharmacy services organization where we also have the PBM, so one of the nation's largest pharmacy benefit management organizations. Optum Health is the next, which is where to make, for the simplicity of this discussion, it's where we have all of our care delivery resources. So the biggest thing that we're known for there is Optum Care. Optum Care has over 50,000 physicians that are part of the Optum Care network, largely value-based practices. And we also have the other care delivery assets like MedExpress and SCA and other things like that in there. There's some other stuff in Optum Health, but I think the best way to think about it is that it's closer to the delivery of care. And in some cases, the delivery of specialized care and the benefit programs around those. And then Optum Insight is really the healthcare services organization. So we focus on analytics, AI, data, research, consulting, managed services, technology, sort of all those types of services delivered really to every sector of the health of healthcare. Our largest businesses are payer and provider, but we have a large state government business, a large life sciences business, and we serve a lot of other industry partners. And then of course we serve UHC as a client as part of our payer business and serve other parts of Optum, including Optum Care as part of our provider business. So if that helps you make some some sense of the, the three organizations, we probably have the most well, we have a lot of commercially focused products in Optum Insight because we have capabilities that both serve our enterprise and serve externally. And so that's the perfect backdrop to the question I was going to ask, which is, you know, a lot of times each of us see a certain lens of a stakeholder. So to your point, in the old days, advisory board, provider, even Premier's days, very provider. You know, now you've got provider, you've got payer, you've got a parent that's a payer, you've got life science, you've got employer. Has that changed your viewpoint and specifically has it changed your viewpoint all around strategy? And then more importantly, are you seeing the inefficiencies like firsthand now in terms of how not how things are? That's a, a great question. I neglected to say one thing on your last question. So I'm going to go back and answer that and then we can come back to this question, which is, and then you roll up Optum into Optum and Optum is a sister company to UHC. 
separate companies to United Healthcare, and both are sister companies under the United Health Group umbrella. So Optum is not what I might have thought before coming in a subsidiary of United Healthcare. It's actually a sister company, and they are independent. I think it's always you know they're in a, it's an advantage to have UHC as a as a customer because you learn a lot from them that helps you have better better products externally. But we are independent, and sometimes you want UHC to do something with a certain client that you're working with, and they don't want to do it. You have to then negotiate that like you would with any other partner out there. So anyway, it's a, it is an important distinction because I think a lot of the the conversations we had with our clients about Optum was explaining the structure and that we're not United Healthcare, we're actually Optum. And that's really good for our clients in a lot of ways and kind of got them over that hump after the acquisition. Anyway, to your question, which is a very good question, I've loved expanding from just a provider purview into the other markets. It's been probably the most interesting part of this job. And I always tell people when they ask me how it's going, I say, I'm learning a ton. And this is one of the places where I'm learning. I really had most of my exposure in the provider market, and I've, I've loved learning kind of how the other parts interplay. And I, like I said, when we did the acquisition, when we went through the acquisition, one of the benefits was going to be getting the advisor board into other markets. And we always felt like that was something we needed to do, and this would help us accelerate it because healthcare was changing. You really can't focus myopically on providers and have no real depth in the other parts of healthcare if you're going to solve providers' issues today. I mean, it's so linked to payer policy and clinical guidelines and clinical trials and new therapies that are coming down the line and how payers end up treating those and what that means for physician practices. I mean, there's just so much linkage today. So I've loved that part of it. And I think for Optum Insight, to your question, where we really are distinctive is the fact that we have all those customer bases and so sit at the intersection of a lot of these markets. So if you look at our strategy going forward, it's heavily dependent upon, like you said, noticing where there's just inefficient interaction between different parts of the system and trying to solve that. So the easiest one is payment integrity on the payer side and a revenue cycle on the provider side. Payers spend a ton of money and providers spend a ton of money and there's a lot of pain and effort that goes into just getting claims paid correctly. You know, not even arguing about whether the substance of the claim is right, just get a procedure coded correctly, get it to the payer, get it adjudicated, get the payment sent back and have all that flow smoothly. There's a ton of effort around all that, as you know. And we believe we can build a platform that sits in between and takes a lot of the pain out of that. And so it makes it more efficient for payers. It makes it better for providers who will have a lot of the intelligence that comes from the payers looking at claims upstream in their own operations so they don't have to wait for it to get to the payer for that feedback to be registered. And then at some point in the future, you can see a world where there's just no more claims because from the data, we can say, well, the provider did X, Y, and Z. The payer rules were A, B, and C against that, and you put those together, and this would, be, would have been the payment. By the way, we could have predicted all that with our data and analytics, and so therefore, this payer owes this provider X for this month, and we just know that. And that's a pretty strong future vision, but it's an example of sitting in the middle and having the insight in each of those markets that we can get, I think, much better at. And then if you if you think about the amount of stuff that we, we've known well and you've known well, even back to the advisor board days of the amount of private equity, the amount of venture capital now, starting to pour into what, you know, sometimes we'll call wedge plays or yep. gap plays between these different subsections of the, of the landscape. You know, how do you guys view that now? I would think that you would have such a unique point of view on that because you could see sort of what's coming around the corner a little bit because you're dealing with so many different customer types in the landscape. Well, I got to avoid, you know, you want to avoid feeling like you can predict the future. I've certainly been surprised by where things have gone a few times. So I want to be careful here, but I think your point about being in multiple markets and being an insight-driven business does give us you know, a lot of insight into where we think 
both their opportunities to solve problems and some of the solutions that are that are good at solving those problems today or, or will likely to be. And I guess to the comment on venture coming in and coming to some good solutions, you know, my perspective is we're past the age where sort of the cool widget gets a lot of traction. It's always about where can you deliver value against an existing spend area or an existing pool of money or an existing way. I mean, it's all got to somehow make something cost less over time. Or if it's going to cost more, it's got to come because it takes costs out of somewhere else. You know, the, the, you can't grow the healthcare pot. There are very few places in healthcare where people can expand their spend. It's all about finding more value. And that's really the, the mission that we're on. So I think we're entrepreneurs. You've seen a lot of money come into these places where you know, you can actually, the big fad today is obviously, you know, delivering better care and more efficient care to the most chronically ill populations and doing that in all kinds of really amazing ways. I mean, see a ton of innovation in that space where there's technology or data innovation. It's the same thing. It's like, how is that piece of technology or how's the data going to play into the ecosystem to drive costs out of the system or drive to more efficient, more effective, more higher, higher quality care. The other thing is an optimum we have the opportunity to steer where some of this goes. I mean, it's a big enough place where I do think if we can execute on some of the things I was talking about earlier, I think that has a, a positive influence on the direction of where care can go. And I know that if you look at our Optum strategy, all the work that's going on in Optum Care, it really is to drive to a higher value healthcare system. I mean, that's the whole mission behind it is to lower total cost of care. I think that's an advantage to being an option because we know where, at least where we're investing behind it. And if we invest in the right ways, we can hopefully move the needle a little bit. I think you and I could probably talk for two more hours because we've had in past lives. So <laughs> I want to, I do want to get it closer to wrapping up here on a couple of questions, which is follow on from what we just talked about. I think I'd be amiss not asking this question, which is, you know, Optum has been fairly acquisitive and in my opinion, a very smart acquirer of companies over the years. And you think about the landscape today, specifically for your division, Robert, because we've got a lot of listeners that also, as you can imagine, are running some of these companies. How does Optum think about acquisitions? You know, how do, how do you think about what matters right now? Um, how do you think about, I assume, you know, large corporate development group, whatever have you, but more just sort of how you think about the sort of buy versus build versus partner mentality when you're as big as you are with at Optum? Yep. That's a, it's a really good question. So I'll share my personal insights and you know, I'm still somewhat of a rookie at Optum, so there are probably people who can describe it a little better than me. Two and a half years at Optum is still rookie league. But what I'll say is we don't just have one size fits all. We might have in the past, but it's not sort of acquire or don't acquire. So as you know, we have Optum Ventures. I'm going to get the size of the fund wrong, but I want to say it's $800 million. And they you know, invest in a lot of early stage companies. Probably may have co-invested some with you guys, Keith. And I think that's, that was a really smart move. It was done before I got here, but I loved it because it gets us exposure to some of these companies at a stage where we might not otherwise get exposure to them. Because the flip side of corporate development here is for us to spend a lot of time on something, it's got to move the needle a little bit. And so Optum's huge. Like I said, it's a big business. And so looking at the types of companies that we look at at the advisor works, we could buy them and take a couple of years, invest in them and really scale them up. That value proposition here, with the exception of a capability that we can scale across Optum or across United quickly, just doesn't move the needle enough to spend time on relative to some of the larger deals. So Optum Ventures has been great because it gives us a way of interacting with earlier stage companies in a way that gets us exposure to it. And we found a few where they actually do move the needle on some parts of our business that 
probably would have been hard to figure that out just kind of from the universe of companies out there. So that gets us a way of spending time and energy on earlier stage companies that our normal corp development process might not have enabled us to do. So I really like that. The other one is that I've been a little more open to creative types of deals. We've done a couple of deals lately where we take a majority position, but not a full ownership position and work with the company over a period of years to achieve certain targets. And that you know, that sometimes can help bridge some gaps in whatever expectations there were or kind of prove out the value proposition in a way that we might have not been able to do that otherwise. So uh, those are two ways I've really seen corporate development innovating. And then back to your question, M&A is a key part of our strategy. Like when I look at what we're going to do and what we want to do, we can't get there without some smart acquisitions along the way of pulling in capabilities externally because I can't develop all the internal capabilities fast enough to move the needle. So it's got to be a combination of investing internal capital, evolving our product sets and bringing in inorganic companies into the mix who can drive us forward. Like last year, Optimins had acquired Equian uh, from New Mountain Capital. It's been a great acquisition for us. It brought a lot of commercial clients into our payment integrity business. It brought a couple of areas of payment integrity where they had great solutions. And there are a lot of synergies from pulling the teams together. We've kept, you know, kept the majority of those people in really good roles engaged and now leading parts of what was our business before. And that's been really positive. So I'd love to find some more opportunities of acquisitions like that, because that really does create meaningful, rapid value. Got it. That's perfect. Because I think, again, I've been an admirer from far out on the inside on, on that. And I think you guys have been smart about pulling the M&A the way you have, let alone structuring some of those deals. But maybe the last question, and we can wrap up here, is sort of the broader landscape. You know, you've been around this long enough now, similar to myself, and, and just your point of view on what the next 10 years looks like. I, again, I think you've got one of the best purviews out there in terms of the, the seat you sit in now. What happens? I mean, I ask this question all the time, which is you got big tech, you got retail, you got all the private equity and venture coming in. You know, you get such a mismatch of things happening at some level of tectonic shifts to a certain degree. I'm just curious when you sit back and think about, to your point about what may happen, how you think about the next 10 years. Boy, it's, again, I don't want to promise me Nostradamus. <laughs> I think there's some imperatives that have to happen. Number one is we have got to take accountability for reducing the total cost of care on a per capita basis. It just costs too much to deliver care. And if you kind of, you kind of play out the cost trends, obviously the pandemic has made this a little bit less of a right now issue because costs have gone way down during the pandemic. But if you, that's not a great thing either because people are missing needed care. You roll it forward. We were on an unsustainable cost trajectory and I do worry that if we don't solve it, those of us in the industry working in companies to try to improve healthcare, there's going to be some macro solutions that will come in and solve it for us. And that's that's probably, you know, a blanket solution is never a great thing. If we could innovate and solve it ourselves, I think we'd all be in a better place. So I think we all need to take accountability for how do we really structurally reduce the cost of healthcare. It's not, it's not just, hey, you know, we're going to come in with this great new innovation and charge a bunch for it. And it's going to make a few people's lives better, but it's not going to change anybody else. Like some of that stuff is, it, we don't, we can't afford to continue to just grow the pond. It's got to be, it's got to be finding ways to be more efficient. So I know that's speaking at 30,000 feet, but it drives a lot of what we do. And I feel a lot of accountability for doing that. Cause I just think it's, if we don't, then someone else is going to solve it for us or it's going to get solved for us in ways that I don't think will be be great for our healthcare system. The second is I do think that this move to value-based care is real. And I think the pandemic has highlighted that. Um, value practices have done reasonably well 
during this time and have proven that you can still deliver high quality and, and lower cost care. And fee-for-service obviously struggled. So it's that's a little bit pandemic related, but you wonder if it's kind of opened the door to a broader consideration of the move to value and whether you'll see players who might have not been in favor of it or not been structurally set up to do it, really taking it seriously as we move forward. That's obviously dependent still on a lot of national healthcare policy as well. But I do think that value-based care, there's no sort of um, political constituency that doesn't think value-based care is a good idea. So in whatever form it goes forward, I do think we'll continue to see that move forward. And that's a positive for the system. And then third, from it, you know, this is, you guys are venture capitalists. So I'll give my two cents for being totally not knowledgeable about the venture capital business in healthcare. (laughs) But I think, you know, we've seen certainly high valuations today, and I always think they're too high, but as a buyer, I just think they're too high. I don't see any reason why they wouldn't continue to be high. Like the amount of innovation in healthcare right now is amazing. And there's clear trends that are going to happen. Clearly, we're going to be able to do more with data and predict more and be able to adjudicate more and drive more decisions through data and analytics and clinical guidance and administrative guidance. I mean, there's a wealth of opportunity out there that right now those processes are really slow, really inefficient, a lot of manual things like chart pulls and policy reviews and things like that, all that stuff can be automated and done better with advanced analytics and artificial intelligence. I think certainly on the data and analytics side, you're going to see all kinds of applications continue to to create value and I think continue to be valued highly by the industry. Clinical innovation obviously will continue and I think you're seeing a ton of really good innovation out there today. And again, I'm never negative on paying more for a new therapy that really does advance better health, I just always want to pair that with, okay, then where does it take, where does that value manifested? So if we're going to, someone's going to pay a million bucks for a drug in a given year, let's talk about what that means for their downstream health costs and how we're sure that those costs do come out of the system as a result. And how can we manage that together in a value-based arrangement? And there's, there's ways to do it. So I don't think that that should slow innovation there. It just means that we'll have to find different ways to address how that innovation is, is monetized. And then finally, you know, I think what's been cool about the last 10 years, look at all the talented people that have come into healthcare. You know, back in 2000 and 2010, healthcare could be a little bit of a sleepier part of the industry. And I think we've seen healthcare become hot. I mean, I, I tell people, I remember when I started as CEO in 2008, it was right when the downturn happened. You can pick up the Wall Street Journal and not read about healthcare for weeks on end. And I bet since 2011, or even 2010, that there's not been one day that there hasn't been a prominent healthcare article in the paper, really, since it became top of the national agenda and became something that, you know, all of a sudden it was clear that there was a real opportunity for us to pour innovation and investment dollars behind it and improve the industry. So you're getting a lot of attention. The attention makes us be better, but it also makes the industry better. So I'm, I'm good with that. And if, you know, like you said, the big players investing in it, so be it. Like, think it pushes us all to be better. Yeah, I think that last point's a great one and talked about a little bit, but probably not talked about enough, which is I can tell you in the, the two decades I've been at this, the level of talent has been fundamentally different over the last, you know, even five to eight years. So, but they're all really good points. And I just want to thank you for your time. I know um, I've been trying to do this for a while, twist your arm a little bit. So I'm glad we finally get it on the books and I appreciate you being here and um, look forward to keeping chatting here on this stuff. So terrific. 
All right, well, that is a wrap. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Once again, I'm Tom Salemi, Editorial Director of Device Talks and host of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at MedTechTom, and I'm on LinkedIn. And of course, if you want to reach out and connect with Keith Figlioli, the host of this podcast, he is also on Twitter at Keith Figlioli. His last name is spelled F-I-G-L-I-O-L-I. And of course, you can find him on LinkedIn. He's very active there, probably more active than Twitter. Just look under Keith Figlioli at LRV Health. And again, share this podcast, subscribe to this podcast. And when you do share it, make sure you connect Keith and myself. We'd love to be part of those conversations. And tune in next time. We'll have another great episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders waiting for you.